morning. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. The Renaissance period brought with it a renewal in human anatomy, and with it, it brought the first autopsy. The first legal autopsy was performed in 1315. Uh, it may interest you to know that Leonardo da Vinci performed 30 autopsies, and Michelangelo did some. But actually, there was an autopsy that preceded that, and it was performed by Jesus in about 95 A.D. And we have the coroner's report in chapter 3 of Revelation, verses 1 to 6. Notice verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. An oxymoron is when you use two seemingly contradictory terms side by side. When you say something is simply impossible or awful good, that's an oxymoron. Civil war, minor crisis, I'm pretty ugly, oxymoron. Well, my title to this message is an oxymoron. The dead church. A church, by its very definition, is alive. It's made up of spiritually alive people who have eternal life. And so a church should be the farthest thing from death. And yet Jesus says, in Sardis, the church was dead. So this is the church in a coffin. And today I want us to discover three things in this letter that Jesus writes to this dead church. They should be in your bulletin. Number one, how to tell if a church is dead. You ever walked out of a church and thought to yourself, that church is dead? How did you determine that? Maybe it was numerical. You say there was nobody there. The, the church held ten times the number of people that was there, so it must be dead. Maybe it was musical. All the songs they sang were over a hundred years old. Everybody who wrote them is dead, so that church must be dead. Maybe it's emotional. No passion in preaching, no joy in singing, no fervency in prayer, no excitement in fellowship. That church is dead. You know, sometimes that is cultural. I had a friend who uh, ministered in Africa, and uh, he was over here on furlough and heard a song he really enjoyed about 20 years ago and thought he would take it back to Africa and share it with them. And it was a song, maybe some of you remember it. It was, uh, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul, rejoice. He shared it with oh, the people over there, and they said, well, that sounds like a funeral. 
You know, it's, it just keeps getting lower. The words are good, but in that culture, they did a lot of clapping, a lot of dancing, and so that song would not fit in. So how do you tell if a church is dead? Or let's ask the question positively. How do you tell if a church is alive? And usually we flip the criteria. We say, hey, the building was packed. They sang great contemporary songs. The preaching was passionate. The singing was joyful. The prayer was fervent. It's really alive. Well, is that how you tell? If a church is dead or alive? Apparently not. Because notice what Jesus says to them at the end of verse 1. He says, you have a name that you are alive. Now what does that mean? Does that mean if you were passing through Sardis on a Sunday morning and pulled out the yellow pages, you might find the first church of the resurrection or the church of the living word or the living tabernacle of the resurrected Lord? Did they have a lively name? No. In the first century, there was just one church per city. They didn't have names. The only name they had was the name Jesus gave them here in verse 1 where he calls them the church in Sardis. So what does Jesus mean when he says you have a name that you're alive. Well, he may just mean the name church, but I think he means more than that because in the Bible, when you talked about a name, it really represented someone's identity or someone's reputation. We say that today. He made a name for himself. And so when he's talking about this church having a name, he's saying you have a reputation that you are alive. And I think that's why he says here, I know your deeds. There was a lot of activity in this church. There were a lot of things going on in this church. And Jesus says, you have a reputation that you're alive. See, I think people looked at the church in Sardis and thought it was a great church. You want a church that's alive? Go to the church of Sardis. Things are happening there. Man, that church is alive. And yet Jesus says, you are dead. In fact, look at the end of verse 2. He says, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. You have lots of deeds but Jesus says they're not completed. They're not finished. They're hollow deeds. They are found wanting in the eyes of God. Now, what does that tell us? Well, I think it tells us that the most obvious indicators of life in a church may be misleading. A church can be overflowing with people a church can have lots of money. A church can have lots of programs, have great music. A, a church can have deep expressions of emotion. A church can thrive with no opposition, no persecution, and yet be 
dead. You say, well, Dan, why does Jesus call this church dead? I find two indicators in this passage. I see Jesus putting his fingers on the pulse of this church in two primary areas. Number one is character, and number two is their confession. First of all, their character, and for that, slide down to verse 4. He says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You have a few that have not soiled their garments, which tells us what? They had many who had soiled their garments. Garments in Scripture refer to character. Listen to Isaiah 61.10. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. In Zechariah chapter 3, we see Joshua the high priest. He's standing before God in filthy garments. And Satan is there accusing him. And the angel of the Lord says this, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with pure robes. I've taken away your filth from your character and I've replaced it with righteousness. And a few chapters later in Revelation 7, John sees a multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. They're standing before the Lamb in white robes. And verse 14 tells us how they got to be white. And I love this. It says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How do you get a white robe? Well, you don't try to clean your act up. You get a white robe by washing it in the blood of the Lamb. A few weeks ago, I went into our laundry room and I saw a white shirt I hadn't seen for a while, one I enjoyed wearing. It was hanging up, and I got it down, and it looked like it had coffee stains all over it. I don't know who, who must have worn it to get it messed up like that, but I looked at it, and, and, and I threw it in the washing machine. It came out looking the same. So I got some bleach, and I poured it in the washing machine and put the shirt back in, and it came out white like it was before. You see, the key was the bleach. And when it comes to sin, there is one eternal bleach, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, let me clarify something. All of us have soiled our garments. So the question here is not, have you soiled your garments? Because I can answer that. The answer is yes. The question is, have you washed those garments in the blood of the Lamb? You see, there were many in Sardis who were not covered by the blood. They were still covered with their filthy garments. They were not covered with Jesus' righteousness. They were still standing in their own self-righteousness. 
And what does the Bible say about your self-righteousness? All your righteous deeds are like what? Filthy rags. You say, well, Dan, if most of the people in this church are not genuine believers, and they're still wearing their garments of sin, how did they have a reputation of being alive? Well, I think there would be two reasons. You can only do two things. If you're an unbeliever and you decide to be religious, you have to, number one, lower the standard. And I don't know if you've been paying attention in our country lately, but we are lowering the standard. What was a crime in our country 50 years ago, the last couple weeks, has now become something we applaud. The same thing is true in the church. When unbelievers are in leadership in the church, what happens? You have to lower the standard so it's something we can approach. Or secondly, you have to play the hypocrite. Play the hypocrite. Who were considered to be the most spiritually alive people in Israel in the first century? The scribes and the Pharisees. What did Jesus say to them in Matthew 23, 27? He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. What did they do? They painted the outside, and inside they were filthy. That's the best religion can do. Religion without reality leads to hypocrisy. So either they lowered the standards so that they could come close, or they played the hypocrite, which means they learned to deal with many of the exterior sins, but they still had the interior sins, the sins that were not observable by other people, not so obviously seen by other people, but just as lethal. Sins like pride and greed and self-righteousness. And so Jesus comes to this church and he put his finger on the pulse of their character and he says, you are dead. And then secondly, he puts his fingers on the pulse of their confession. And for that, look at the end of verse 5. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now what's the condition for Jesus confessing your name before his father and his angels. Matthew 10, 32 says, everyone, this is Jesus' words, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my father. Luke 12, 8, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of man will confess him before the angels of God. A few in the church at Sardis confessed the name of Jesus. Most did not. Now, what does it mean to confess the name of Jesus? Well, it means to say that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the only way. People are lost without Jesus. People are hell-bound without Jesus. By their own efforts, they will never be saved. 
Jesus is the only way. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you shall be saved. And the church that fails to confess that is dead. And I think that's why we find in this church no mention of persecution, no mention of them fighting false teaching like we read in many of the other letters. Why? Because they had embraced the false teaching. And they were not being persecuted because they had really embraced the world around them. They were not offending anyone. They epitomized the phrase in 2 Timothy 3.5 that says they were holding to a form of godliness though they had denied its power. They were holding to the form of godliness. They were holding to all the religious fixings. But they had denied the power because they were not confessing the name of Jesus Christ. So Jesus puts his finger on their confession, and there's no pulse. And he says, you are dead. So point number one. How to tell that a church is dead? It's because of a person's character. They're dressed in self-righteousness rather than God's righteousness because they're not washed in the blood of the Lamb. And second, their confession. They are failing to, to proclaim that Jesus is our all in all. Second point, how to raise a church from the dead. Now, what I love here is Jesus could have said, you're dead and I'm going to bury you. This letter could have ended after verse 1 with a big period, and Jesus moves on. But what I love here is that Jesus continues to reach out in his mercy, even to the dead church. And so he calls them to do five things. I want to point them out. Number one is wake up. You see that at the beginning of verse 2. You are closing your eyes to sin in your midst, while you're patting each other on the back and saying, wow, our numbers are up. Wow, our programs are exciting. And you're closing your mouth to be silent about Jesus. Why? Because he doesn't sell in this world. You want to be popular in this world? Don't talk a lot about Jesus because he's not popular. And Jesus says, because you have fallen asleep because you are dead to my character and my name. You need to wake up. When you go home this afternoon and you're sitting on the couch and you're watching the women's soccer game that everybody's excited about, um, I prefer the highlights of soccer because there's about one minute of them. But you're sitting on the couch today, this afternoon, you're watching the game or golf or whatever, and you fall asleep. Now, you don't know you're asleep until what? Until you wake up. You wake up and go, what happened? Where am I? I must have fallen asleep. If that's true of sleep, how much more true is that of death? You see, I would suggest to you that
The churches that are dead don't know it. And people that are dead don't know it until they wake up. Classic example in the Old Testament is Samson. Samson, of course, was empowered by God to fight the Philistines, and he disobeyed God and ended up with Delilah, ended up getting his hair cut off. And the Philistines came upon him, and this is what we read in Judges 16, 20. Samson said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. People who are spiritually dead or people who are spiritually impotent don't know it. So Jesus' first exhortation is, wake up. Be alert. Be aware. Second exhortation, look up. And for that, go back to verse 1, where Jesus identifies himself as having the seven spirits of God. That's a little confusing. That comes out of chapter 1 in the description of Jesus. He has the seven spirits of God. What does that mean? Well, listen to Isaiah 11.2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. See, what he's saying is there's there's one spirit, but he has these seven attributes. That's why in Zechariah chapter 4, we have a description of one lampstand with seven lamps. It's the Jewish menorah. And in that same chapter, it tells us what that lampstand is a picture of with the seven lamps on the one lampstand when it says this, not by might, nor nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's a picture of the spirit of God. He has one spirit with these seven attributes. And so why does Jesus describe himself to this church? Because he describes himself different to every church. Why does he describe himself to this church as the one who has the Spirit of God? Well, what does a dead church need? Jesus' words in John 3 were, you have to be born of the Spirit. What happens when a person dies? A lot of us think about the physical things. Well, his heart stops, his brain stops. What happens when a person dies is his spirit leaves his body. And so death is separation. It is a separation of a person's spirit from their body. You can cut my leg off, I'm still alive. You can bury my leg. I'm still alive because my spirit is still in my body. When my spirit leaves my body, I die. In the future resurrection, what's going to happen? Our spirits are going to be reunited with our resurrection bodies. Before I was a believer, why was I dead spiritually? Because I was separated from God. I had a human spirit in my body, so I was alive physically, but I didn't have the Spirit of God dwelling in me. And that's what happened when I was born again. The Spirit of God came to dwell inside of me. And so Jesus is writing to this dead church And what he's saying is, wake up and look up 
Because I'm the one who has the answer to your need. I have the Spirit of God who can bring you life. And then thirdly, he says strengthen. Look at verse 2 again. Strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. Verse 4 tells us there were a few people that hadn't soiled their garments. And verse 2 says there are a few things that haven't died, haven't decayed yet. And he says, gather up those few things and strengthen them. In other words, start where you are. Start with whatever is left. Do an inventory. Find out what's left. When I was a kid, my mom used to cook Sunday dinner. It was usually a roast, so she could put it in the oven in the morning, and it would be ready, and we would usually eat about 2.30 in the afternoon. We were starving. But it was the best meal of the week. And there was always leftovers from Sunday, and so she would take those leftovers, and she'd put them in the Tupperware and put them in the refrigerator. And on Monday night or Tuesday night, she would bring them back out, and she would chop them up and dice them and add some cream of mushroom soup and serve it to us again and give it some French name. We said, hmm, that's good. See, those were leftovers in the hand of a master. Jesus is saying, take the little you have left and give it to me. It may just be a couple fish and five little loaves, but give it to me. Remember when God said to Moses, what's that in your hand? And Moses says, just a stick. Just a stick. Throw it down. He throws it down. It becomes a snake. Pick it up. He picks it back up. And what was formerly just a stick that could lead sheep can now part the Red Sea. Take whatever's left in your life. For you, you may look around and say, the only thing I got left is time. Then give it to the Lord. Give him whatever is left. And then the fourth exhortation in verse 3 is remember what you've received and heard and keep it. If you go back far enough, every church starts the same way. It starts with people hearing and receiving what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts that way. It doesn't always finish that way. The only way that people become part of the church is by hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, the problems always come in a church when we get away from the idea of it being by grace through faith. And Jesus says, remember. Go back to the basics. That's why Jesus tells us to take a bread and a cup on a regular basis and do what? 
remember me. Remember my death on the cross. Remember that my blood was shed for you. Don't get far away from the simple truth of the gospel. And Sardis did that. And so Jesus says, you need to remember that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then the final exhortation is, repent. Repent. When you wake up and see your sinful condition and you look up and realize that God is your only hope, and you gather up the things that remain and remember the message of the gospel, the only thing left to do is repent. Repent of your self-centeredness. Repent of your pride, your greed, your self-righteousness. God specializes in resurrections. But many of us refuse to get in the cemetery and lay down. Repent means stop. Some of us are running so fast after so many things, and he says, stop. Turn around. Turn from the things you're pursuing and turn to Jesus Christ. And when you do that, or even when the dead church does that, the words in Psalm 51:17 apply. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Third point. How to be alive in a dead church. What happens if this church doesn't repent? Look at the end of verse 3. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Sardis was the oldest city in Asia Minor, and because of that, it got to pick the best spot. So it was in the best location for a city. It was built on a plateau 1,500 feet above the plain below. And as a result, the city was very self-sufficient and confident, much like the church that was there. And so they were a fortress on a hill that considered themselves untouchable. About 350 years after this letter was written in 549 B.C., the Persian army under King Cyrus gathered in the valley below Sardis. The city was so self-confident that all they did was close the gates on their fortress and went on with life as usual. King Cyrus offered a huge reward to the first soldier who could mount the wall. And many soldiers went up and tried and they were killed. And one soldier by the name of Herodes stayed up all night and watched the wall. And he noticed one of the soldiers on the wall dropped his helmet and it fell over the wall and went partway down the side of the plateau. And he watched as that soldier came down off his post, went through a little crack in the wall, made his way down to where his helmet was and went back up. The next night, Herodes led Cyrus and the Persian army up that path through that crack in the wall and they attacked Sardis like a thief in the night. 
And Jesus says to this dead church located there, if you don't wake up, I'm coming the same way. Unannounced, unexpected, and worse. If you notice at the end of verse 3, some of your Bibles say, I am coming against you. That's the idea here. A thief doesn't come to help you. A thief comes against you. And let me state the obvious. You don't want the king of kings to come against you. If Jesus comes for you, he comes as the lamb. Standing as a slain. He holds you in his arms. He wipes away every tear. He promises you no more sorrow, no more pain, no more hunger, no more thirst. Inexpressible joy for all eternity. But if he's against you, he is the conquering king. And you will experience the full impact of his wrath. And when that happens, you will wake up. And you will say, this is just because I deserve it. But that was not true of all in the church at Sardis. Because he says in verse 4, but you have a few people, or literally you have a few names in Sardis, who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You see, you can be alive in a dead church, because salvation is not a group plan. Individuals can be saved even in a dead church. You say, well, why didn't these people leave? Well, because there was only one church in town. They didn't have anywhere to go. You say, well, why does Jesus call them worthy? That's an odd thing to call somebody who's saved by grace through faith alone, who has filthy garments on their own, and Jesus gives them his righteousness, and then he says, you're worthy. Seems out of place, doesn't it? When I read this word, I think of the elders in Revelation chapter 4, or Revelation chapter, yeah, chapter 4. And it says, they were given cr crowns. What's a crown? It's like a symbol of honor. They were given these crowns, and what do they do with the crowns? It says they take their crowns off, and they lay them at the feet of Jesus, and say, worthy are you. Under the grace of God, even what God calls us, even when he calls us worthy, even when he gives us honor, we turn around and we give it back to Jesus Christ because he's the only one who deserves it. And here's the promise to the few in Sardis. Look at verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who overcomes, what do these people have to overcome? They have to overcome what the dead people around them in that church have embraced. They have to overcome 
the self-righteousness that is so prevalent around them. I was in a store yesterday, and I saw a coffee mug that said, believe in yourself. That's a great message. I've tried that. It doesn't work. That's the opposite of the gospel. Believe in yourself. And that's the message of our world. That was the message in this church. And they had to overcome that message that said, you can do it yourself. It's all in your self-effort to humble themselves and receive the grace of Jesus Christ so that their character went from filthy garments to robes of righteousness. And then they had to overcome the confession, overcome being silent about Jesus. Why are we silent about Jesus? Because we sense the persecution that might come. And we have to overcome our own pride to say it is all about him. And I'm going to speak up even if I get an ugly look, even if I get opposition, even if I'm called a hater, I'm going to speak up for Jesus Christ. That's what they had to overcome. And then Jesus gives them three motivations. He says, I will give you white garments of purity. They come from him. You will walk in white. You're going to be that bride who is dressed in white garments because Jesus has made you so. And then the second thing, he says, I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I think this is a, culture, a cultural analogy because in the city registries of that day, when a person died, they would blot their name off the books. Or when a person moved away, they would blot their name off the books. Or when a person became a criminal, they would blot their names off the books. And Jesus is saying, the government may do that to you, but I will not do that to you. Even a dead church may do that to you. I was reading this week that on October 21st, 1517, Martin Luther was excommunicated. His name was blotted out of the church books, and they consigned his soul to eternal hell. Why? Because he said his character didn't come from himself. It came from the righteousness of Jesus Christ put to his account by faith alone. And because he claimed and confessed Jesus alone, that it's by grace through faith in Christ. And so what Jesus is saying, what the government may do to you, and what even a dead church may do to you, blot your name out, I will never do to you. And then he gives a third motivation. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. When we confess Jesus, he says, I will confess you. Someday Jesus is going to say, Father, angels, Dan Green. He's mine. You see, that's all that matters. That's enough. That's enough. If you go through this letter, it's interesting that the word name is used quite often here. Verse 1 says you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Verse 4 says there are a few names that have not soiled their garments. Verse 5 says I won't erase your name, but rather I'll declare your name before all heaven. 
Let's close with the last verse, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Is the Spirit of God speaking to you today? Maybe you're dead because you've never come to Christ and you need to repent and receive Him today. Maybe you've accepted Christ but your deeds indicate otherwise and you need to wake up and repent and gather up the things that are remaining and give them to Him. Give Him all of you. Why not say today, I want Christ to come as my bridegroom, not as a thief. I don't just want a name that says I'm alive. I want to be alive. And when I die, I want the autopsy report to read physically dead, but spiritually dead risen, ascended, seated in heaven, alive in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this somber letter to the dead church. Father, I pray today that you would allow us to take it to heart, to be challenged for our own lives and challenge for those that we know around us who may still be in that condition. Father, I pray that we might truly heed your call to wake up, to repent, and to begin to make a difference in this world around us. And we will be careful to give you all the glory for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.